0: It's August 22nd, I'm Brian Dean Wright, former CIA operations officer, and this is The Wright Report. Hey, good day to you, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Wright Report, your daily news podcast. I've got four briefs for you this morning that are shaping America and the world. First up, more records are being set on America's southern border with more arrests of migrants and their families. And yet the Biden White House is selling border fences that are in storage and are otherwise available to help. That leads the news this morning. Second, there is an attempt to ban Donald Trump from primary ballots from all across this country. And it has to do with the Constitution and the 14th Amendment. I'll explain that plan and who's organizing it. Third, an update on the AI revolution. It turns out that it's being programmed to have a political bias. And actually, it's deciding whether or not you should have a job. And that sounds like a bad combo. Details coming up. Finally, we wrap up with some good news from the world of AI. Two pieces of good news, actually, that all will help us live longer. Later, we close out the podcast with a well-timed question about elections and technology. A listener wants to know, Are those voting machines secure? Hmm. Now I've got an answer for you. Just a few minutes. But first, let's get to our top story of the morning. We start with immigration, ladies and gentlemen, with two developments on the southern border with one key takeaway. The first development comes to us from several cities in America, New York City and Portland, Maine, both of whom are struggling today with their share of some of the 6.3 million illegal migrants who have entered the United States since Joe Biden became president. So we start in New York City, where new figures out late last week show that 10,000 migrants are arriving in that community each month, making it the top destination for illegals who have been processed by border guards and are awaiting asylum hearings. Data show that Los Angeles is in second place, the second most popular destination, followed by Miami, Chicago, and Houston. But it is not just major cities that are being impacted with this latest surge. The city of Portland, Maine, they're getting hammered too. Late last week, the Washington Examiner reported that city officials there are dealing with about 1,600 migrants, costing them around $1.9 million to just rent enough hotel rooms. Food, medical care, education, those are all separate expenses. Now, as listeners know, New York and Maine are just two of the states being impacted by these record migrant numbers. We are seeing the same thing in Massachusetts, Colorado, California, In fact, July's numbers of illegal migrants were reported last week, sitting at 130,000, and about half of those were families. And that is a dramatic uptick from June. And that increase is actually a part of the reason for why Joe Biden asked Congress about a week ago for an extra billion dollars to house illegal migrants nationally. So folks, let's consider all of that as we listen to this the Biden administration is moving to quickly sell off parts of the border wall that are sitting in storage. And the folks at the Biden White House are doing this because the House and the Senate on a bipartisan basis are moving forward with something called the Finish It Act. And that would require the Biden White House to use these border wall panels to extend the border wall. Or if the White House prefers, they can transfer these things to state governments, including Texas and New Mexico, Arizona, California, and those states can install them instead if they choose. But the White House is trying to get ahead of this legislation to avoid finishing the wall or having states do it. Instead, they're ramping up the sale of these panels at auction, often for pennies on the dollar as compared to their original price. Well, so far, the Biden White House has sold a little over half of the panels that had been in storage for over two years now, just about 40% of them left. Well, as you would imagine, this news, as reported over the weekend, it outraged a whole bunch of folks, although mostly congressional Republicans, who called it a waste, a dirty trick, or politics at its worst. Meanwhile, Democrats have not commented on this story, or at least nothing I could find as of this morning. So those are the facts and data on this continuing migration crisis in America, with numbers of migrants increasing, while the number of border panels are apparently decreasing, Let me now pivot to my analysis and opinion and i will simply say this this immigration crisis is a choice it's a political decision to allow it right you don't sell off 150 million dollars worth of border wall panels when you have an illegals crisis unless you are benefiting somehow from that crisis now i share with you the details on what that possible benefit to this crisis might be I shared details on that back on August 3rd and August 10th. If you happen to have missed those briefs, definitely go back and listen if you missed them. But to recap, the benefits have to do with the census and reparations. But the bottom line is this, the Biden White House and his party ultimately do not believe that we have an immigration crisis. And as I shared with you a couple weeks ago, some don't even believe that we even need a border. So this problem is not going to get solved until voters like you and your friends, y'all get organized and you change the nation's leaders. And with that, we turn to our second report of the morning. On Sunday, the former Republican governor of Arkansas, Asa Hutchinson, claimed that former President Donald Trump is barred by the U.S. Constitution from ever running for the presidency again. So he claimed on CNN's State of the Union that Trump is disqualified because of the 14th Amendment to the Constitution that bans those people who have ever engaged in insurrection or rebellion. And he said Trump's disqualification might not even require a legal case or a court because it has already been proven that Trump had encouraged this insurrection back on January 6th. And that means constitutionally he is automatically disqualified. Now, putting aside Mr. Hutchinson's bias, he is, after all, running for the presidency himself, much like Mr. Trump. He's giving life to an idea that is increasingly being spoken of in, in newspapers, on TV, and amongst political folks who disapprove of Trump's candidacy. So we are going to talk about this idea this morning, how it will work, and whether it would work, all because, ladies and gentlemen, I suspect that you are going to be hearing about this 14th Amendment business a whole bunch of over the next year. So let's start with, well, a constitutional refresher. The 14th Amendment was adopted after the uh, end of the Civil War. Section 3 had to do with the Southern rebels, banning them from office if they had, quote, engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same, the Constitution, or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof, end quote. Although this section of the Constitution, this 14th Amendment, did offer a little bit of a loophole. If two-thirds of both the House and the Senate agreed, they could vote away this restriction for any particular person or disability, as they called it back then. Well, about two weeks ago, several constitutional uh, scholars argued in a paper that Trump and his behavior on January 6th, well, those things and he fit the definition of insurrection. To a T, they said. Now, for paid subscribers, you can read that paper and their argument in full in today's transcript. But meanwhile, the scholars of this paper also argued that other Republican politicians could also be thrown out of office for their alleged support of the January 6th protests, including Senator Ron Johnson of Wisconsin and Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene of Georgia. All right. Well, does this argument hold constitutional water? Well, it all comes down to how you view what happened on January 6th, whether it was a day of protests or insurrection. And we have to wrestle with how we prove it one way or the other. Now, the constitutional scholars say that Nancy Pelosi's January 6th committee has already found it and Trump to be an insurrection and insurrection leader. Well, there you go. Now if you believe it is an insurrection, then Trump is automatically disqualified. Kind of like, uh, you know, you can't be president if you were under the age of 35 or you have to be a natural born citizen to be POTUS. Well, whatever your views are on that, the point is this. There are growing calls for states all across America to view the January 6th protests, not as protests, but as an insurrection. And because of that 14th Amendment and the Pelosi report, well, it says the argument goes that Trump must be automatically removed from state ballots both in the primary or the general election. And that removal process could start happening very soon. Nevada, they are the first ones up. Their candidate deadlines start on October 16th. Other states have their filing deadlines in November and December as well. Meaning that when Trump files his paperwork in each of those states, groups and lawyers who are opposed to his candidacy will file an appeal with local, county, or state officials using this 14th Amendment argument to stop him. Now, by the way, those groups and lawyers include the Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington and Free Speech for People. All right, well, what happens when these groups file their paperwork? Well, depending on state law, a local, county, or state election official could have the authority to drop Trump from any ballot if they so deem. And depending on the state, there would not be a lawsuit or court finding required. Well, as you can imagine, that will cause an absolute electoral wreck from coast to coast. And that is what I expect will happen starting this late fall with all these state filing deadlines. And that is why I'm bringing this to you right now. Because if former Republican governors like Asa Hutchinson are promoting this idea now, then rest assured others are too. So those are the facts and data, ladies and gentlemen, on this developing story. I'm not going to offer you any analysis or opinion just yet. I want to keep my powder dry, as it were, until I see how this plays out. I want to research the groups. I want to follow the money behind it all. And of course, the media coordination. And then I'll offer up my thoughts. Meanwhile, it is on my radar. And now it's on yours, too. With that... Let's take our first break of the morning. For subscribers listening at the right no ads for you this morning. Plus, do not forget all those great transcripts of the morning's report with the hyperlinks to all the sources for the facts and data that I presented. Meanwhile, for my other loyal listeners, please do enjoy the following messages from our sponsoring partners, remembering that if you don't hear my voice telling you about a product or service, then I do not endorse it. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Right Report. Let's continue with our briefs, shall we? With a pivot towards our series, The AI Revolution. That, of course, is our ongoing look at the spread of artificial intelligence, which, as listeners know, seeks to match or even exceed the capabilities of the human mind. Well, this morning, we've got to talk about bias, political bias. Because as it turns out, the programmers who are giving life to this AI are building these AI models with their own preferred politics. And that could impact a whole bunch of things, including your ability to get a job. So here is what we know as reported last week by researchers at the University of Washington and Carnegie Mellon University. And they set out with this goal to prove whether or not AI models like ChatGPT or Google's LAMDA Well, do they give answers to questions that demonstrate a political bias? Well, they tested 14 different AI models in all, asking them 62 questions about a range of social, religious, and political issues. And the result is pretty clear. Some AI systems have a striking bias to the left, like ChatGPT by the company OpenAI. Meanwhile, Facebook or Meta's AI system called BERT, that tended to be more conservative. Now, here's what's interesting. The newer versions of these various AI models, they keep getting more and more skewed politically. In other words, uh, chat GPT-4 is more leftist than, say, GPT-3 or 2. And that is pretty darn fascinating because these AI models are clearly starting with a bias, again, built in by their programmers. And yet, as they learn, you know, consuming more and more information, they're processing it in such a way that it only reinforces their bias. They're not becoming more neutral or more nuanced. It's like these AI systems are ignoring anything that they don't want to hear. Sounds familiar. And here's why that could be bad, folks. These AI systems are flagging stuff as misinformation or hate speech, which might not be either really just a disagreement to whatever the programmer's political beliefs may have been when they put the systems together. Now, here's another reason for why this political bias could be bad. It's not just about misinformation or hate speech labeling. No, it's also bad news for job seekers, right? Companies are increasingly infusing their hiring systems with AI to sort through resumes to see who's best qualified and and then rank those candidates. Now, these systems are also determining who likely has the best personality for a company's culture. And to that end, CBS News recently ran a segment entitled How to Please AI Recruiters When Applying for a Job. Well, this research suggests that pleasing whatever AI system might be, well, you got to be conservative or liberal to get through that first phase. Now, while hiring processes have long been biased in whatever particular way, humans are involved after all, This AI stuff is especially insidious because AI programmers, they're not being honest about how their AI systems might be biased one way or the other. So there is very limited or uncertain ability by folks who are using these programs to keep them honest, corporate America, in other words, even small businesses. So those are the facts and data on this developing AI field. I'm not gonna offer you any analysis or opinion, just some advice. Let's keep our eyes on this. Because while there are some clear benefits to this technology, which I'm going to talk about in a second, it's increasingly clear that there are profound dangers for our societies and our families, including whether you and your families can ever get a job. With that, we turn to our final report of the morning. And let's talk about some good news, especially good news with this AI revolution. Actually, two pieces of good news, all related to how we can use AI to strengthen the field of medicine. First up, AI has been put to some pretty good use in identifying old prescription drugs for new diseases and ailments. Here's the story. Researchers in Europe published findings recently that showed that they used AI to search for drugs that would eliminate or reduce something called senescent cells. These cells are technically alive, but they can't replicate, which gives them the very unhealthy nickname of zombie cells. Well, when these zombie cells build up in the body, some of these cells lead to age-related conditions or ailments like type 2 diabetes, osteoarthritis, and certain cancers. So the researchers wanted to find existing drugs. In other words, the ones already on the shelf, already tested, hoping that some of those might be used to reduce or manage these zombie cells, but have never been properly tested or considered as treatment options for any of these diseases. Now, normally that would take a considerable amount of money and time. So researchers turned to AI. And instead of taking months or longer, it took them minutes. They went from over 4,000 candidates to 21. A bit more research led them to narrow that list down to three. Testing is now underway on these three candidates on human lung tissue. So results are expected in about two years time. And speaking of how AI might help us in the aging process, here's some more good news. Japanese researchers have found that x-rays that were examined by AI, in coordination, by the way, with a radiologist or another doctor, well, these AI systems can help determine if someone's biological age is older or younger than their actual age. Now, if you weren't aware, there is a difference. And here is the difference. Your actual or chronological age is how long you've been alive. Biological age, however, is, well, an examination of your cells, your tissue, which can determine how quickly or slowly your body is breaking down as it ages. Well, researchers in Japan created an AI model that examined about 67,000 chest X-rays or radiographs from healthy people, plus another 34,000 from those with known diseases. And the model allowed doctors to more accurately determine biological age. And that means that with a bit more study, these AI models could serve for both early detection and intervention of a whole bunch of age-related diseases. And that will help us live a little bit longer, and with luck, have more health as we do. So there you go. On one hand, AI might get you fired from a job, or never hired in the first place. But hey, at least you'll be healthy. So there's progress, I guess. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, we conclude this morning's episode of The Right Report. But I've got one more thing before I let you go. We'll be right back. At Granger, we're for the ones who specialize in saving the day and for the ones who've mastered the art of keeping business moving. We offer industrial-grade supplies for every industry with same-day pickup and next-day delivery on most orders, all backed by real people ready to help. So you can get the right answers and products right when you need them. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger. For the ones who get it done. Welcome back to the Right Report with one more thing before I let you go. It is a listener question today sent to us from one of my paid subscribers at rightreport.substack.com. Today it's William. He lives in Berlin, Germany. He is an American fellow who lives over there but listens to the podcast here. So he asked a very timely question, I think, about elections and voting machines quote, Brian, there has been a lot of debate about election voting machines and whether or not they are secure or how to make them more secure. As a former intel officer, what do you think about this whole debate? William, this is a very important question and it shouldn't be controversial. And let me explain why. Years ago, I was talking with a colleague of mine from the National Security Agency or NSA. Right, Those are the guys who intercept emails and phone calls. They Hack computer systems all around the world. So, we were spitballing ideas about an operation and we were talking about phones, smartphones in particular. And I asked him, rank for me the most secure smartphone to the least and why? To which he replied, the safest smartphone is a broken smartphone. And his cheeky reply was right. Ladies and gentlemen, we have Intel operators who spend their entire professional lives finding creative ways to hack and exploit technological devices without anyone ever knowing that they were there. So this idea of hacking and doing it so silently, that's not controversial. That is established fact, right? We we hack stuff and nobody knows it all the time. Ask any Intel officer, Democrat or Republican, and they will agree. So would a an electronic voting machine be any different no it wouldn't and it's not and here's why first they usually have internet connectivity which is a vulnerability they also have software upgrades that is another vulnerability their systems usually have data cords or different kinds of ports and those are yet another vulnerability and as i mentioned yesterday The world is getting more sophisticated to carry out attacks on these kinds of machines without ever having, well, multi-billion dollar budgets. The North Koreans, as I shared yesterday, are some of the world's best. Meanwhile, the Chinese, Russians, Israelis, Emiratis, the the Brits, the French, they all have good to very good cyber capabilities. And that's not even counting what are called non-state actors, Right? These are groups of hackers that get into systems because somebody's paid them a bunch of money to do whatever they are hired to do, or they make ransom demands. So having these electronic voting machines, to me, irrespective of my politics, it's just idiotic. We are asking for trouble. We are asking to undermine our republic, and it is, ladies and gentlemen, that serious of an issue. And what I just said used to be nonpartisan truth. Folks on both sides of the aisle admitted as much for years, but now it's become an issue of politics with people saying, oh, there was no evidence of a machine that was ever hacked. Well, no kidding. That's the whole point. The NSA hacks stuff all of the time, all around the world, such that a target never finds out. And by the way, the rest of the world does the same. So this debate to me as a former Intel guy is so infuriating and the solution, William, it's pretty straightforward. All right, I want voting machines that look like they were built in 1820. I want a steam engine running these things. And maybe a pollster who's got a, an Abe Lincoln top hat. All right, I want old tech that is old school. It can't be hacked and has paper ballots. Now that is inefficient. And it may seem antiquated, but it is safe. It is secure. And it is ultimately what this country deserves. Folks, if you would like me to ask one of your questions on the podcast, ah, it is easy to do. Just go to writereport.substack.com, sign up, choose the subscription option that is best for you and your budget, and then shoot me a note. Plus, enjoy that daily ad-free podcast and that daily transcript with all those great sources. And with that